Team, if you have enjoyed worship this morning, if you enjoyed that song, then I would encourage you to come back tonight. We have uh, our uh, Christmas night of worship this evening, and you don't want to miss that. Pastor Ben will tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the service, but uh, go ahead and, and hopefully make your plans to be here. Uh, it is not often that we associate a deathbed with Christmas. Um, it's not your typical Christmas sermon, and yet this morning that's exactly what we have. Uh, we have an Advent message that is centered around a deathbed. Uh, this song that we just sang is really uh, the impetus for this entire Advent series. Uh, Pastor Ben and Pastor David and myself, we actually fell in love with that song last Christmas uh, listening to it, and we circled it and said, let's, make, let's build the Advent season around that next year. And so our first, uh, our first week of Advent, we looked at Isaiah 9, Isaiah's great light, right? It is Jesus. And then last week, we looked at Genesis 12 and we saw how Jesus is the offspring of Abraham and that all those promises in, in Genesis 12, they come true in Christ. And now this week we have Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham, and he has come to the end of his life. And he is handing out blessings to his sons from his bed, which is why Genesis 49.2 says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. So we have Jacob calling his sons near, and he is pronouncing uh, blessings over them. Those blessings are sort of destinies over them. Uh, he's saying this is what your life's going to be like, but it's bigger than just their life because it's also about the tribe of Israel that they represent. And yet most of this is not future-telling. Most of what you see in Jacob's blessings over his sons uh, are not predictions. The most uh, prediction-heavy portion of Jacob's blessings uh, is the portion we're looking at this morning with Judah. But for the most part, instead of predicting prophecies, as Jacob is pronouncing these blessings over his sons, um, the blessings coming from the patriarch would have more be seen as statements that should be taken seriously. So uh, if somebody came to me and was like, you know, Michael, you're, you, you, God's going to bless you and you're going to live in Oregon in your 60s, you know what I mean? If, if somebody said that to me, that's not in my plans. And I should take that seriously that they said that to me, but at the same time, it's not like locked in that I'm living in Oregon in my 60s, all right? So these are important statements being made by Jacob, but they're not predictions in the way that Isaiah 9 was a prediction a couple of weeks ago. You can't miss the location of Jacob's bed either, because as we wrapped up Genesis 12, there's this great hope that God is going to give Abraham and his people a land. We know the ultimate fulfillment of that promise will be when God provides the new heavens and new earth and internal, an eternal dwelling place for his people forever. That's the ultimate fulfillment of that Genesis 12 promise, and it's going to come to us through the blessings of Christ the Messiah, but in the immediate, God had promised land to Abraham and his family. But here, in Genesis 49, Abraham and his family are not in that land. He was told to go from his country and that God would show him the land that he was going to give him. But as Genesis is ending, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, is not dying in Canaan. He's not surrounded by flowing fountains of milk and honey in the promised land. He's dying in Egypt, forced out of the land promised to his family because of famine. So how will the covenant be fulfilled? Is God's plan not on track? That's the tension hanging over the deathbed blessings of Jacob over his sons. 
So we're going to look at verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49 this morning because for our purposes of Advent, that's where we find the hope of the Messiah. That's where we find the hope of the ages. That's where we find hope that God's plan is not deterred despite Abraham's people being stuck in Egypt and that from Judah there will come one who makes all things right for his people. So Genesis 49, I'll start reading for us in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would help me to preach uh, clearly, to preach uh, the word, Lord, without hindrance this morning. I pray, God, it would be heard and that... uh, Lord, it would go from our hearts and our minds and it would pass to our lips and that we could share it to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ and to spread the good news of the Advent season, the good news of Christmas with everyone we come in contact with. And uh, also we pray, God, it would, uh, our, our listening this morning would result in life transformation for us, that we would look more like your son Jesus, God, because of how you work during this time. So speak, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are five statements we can make about the Messiah from Jacob's blessing this morning. And those statements will be our teaching points. So we're just going to work our way through it. We're going to start naturally in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So teaching point number one, Christ will be praised by his brothers. Christ will be praised by his brothers. When we think of one of Jacob's boys being praised by his brothers, we don't think of Judah. We think of Joseph, right? If you've read Genesis, then you know Joseph is the one who had two dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. In one of the dreams, he and his brothers are in the fields and they're binding sheaves, and his sheave stands upright, and all of theirs bow down to his. And then in another dream, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars are are bowing down to Joseph, foreshadowing how his mother and father and brothers would all bow down to him um, because... As he was sold into slavery in Egypt, he went down there, he rose in favor, he ended up in a position to be able to help his people, to help his family by giving them food when nowhere in the region had food. But this blessing is not pronounced over Joseph, who indeed his brothers and and his family would bow down to, It's, it's pronounced over Judah. And it's surprising because Joseph is really the faultless character in the book of Genesis. You and I know that Joseph was not a sinless man. He was born in sin, just like you and I were born in sin. He was not a perfect man. But if you read Genesis, you don't actually see Joseph's sin in the story. So we know he sinned in life just because we know that theologically. But in Genesis, you don't see Joseph commit sin. 
Some people read that in. They're like, oh no, he was arrogant toward his brothers. You're reading that in. You're letting pop culture read that into the text for you. That is not what's actually there. You don't see Joseph sinning, which means Joseph represents kind of a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He is a foreshadowing of the blameless one who is to come in Jesus. But we're not talking about Joseph here. This isn't Joseph's blessing. It's Judah's. And Judah, frankly, is a bit of a mess. In Genesis 37, he sells Joseph, his own brother, into slavery. In Genesis 38, Judah's wicked son, Ur, dies and leaves his wife, Tamar, as a widow. Judah goes to his son, Onan, and says, hey, you got to take her as your wife, because that was the custom. But Onan schemes his way out of that. When he's supposed to consummate the marriage, he, I'm just going to say, finds a way not to consummate it, and we're going to leave it there, okay? God sees what he does as evil for refusing to take this widow as his wife, and so uh, Onan's life is taken from him. This leaves Tamar with no husband. She's got nobody to speak for her, and so Judah just sends her back to her family. He's just like, eh, just get out of here. That's not what should have happened because he has another son that she should have been married to, but he just dismisses her. And then years later, after Judah's wife dies, he travels to Timnah. Tamar hears about this. She still has no one to speak for her. She's got no clan. She's got no family, which puts her in a very precarious and dangerous position as she's getting older. So she goes to Timnah. She poses as a prostitute in order to sleep with Judah, and he doesn't even know that this is going on. It works. So he sleeps with her, doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. She is impregnated by him. And then when he hears of her getting pregnant outside of marriage, he says, got to burn her alive. And then he realizes he's the father. It's not a great sequence for Judah. Lack of compassion, adultery, he's hot-headed, he's hypocritical. It's all on full display. And that is the sort of behavior that makes it surprising for us to hear this blessing about his brothers bowing down to him. Now, here's the thing. This isn't really about Judah. It's not really about him. It's about the one who's going to come from his line. In the immediate, the sons of Jacob are not going to bow down to Judah. They are going to bow down to Joseph. But in the long run, the tribes of Israel will praise Judah's name when they praise the Messiah who was born from Judah's line. So what we really have being prophesied in this blessing is the praise of the Messiah of God coming out of the mouths of the people of God. And you see this in the scriptures. The joy of God's people over the Messiah begins before Jesus is even out of the womb, before John the Baptist is even out of the womb. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So before Jesus or John the Baptist are even out of the womb, Jesus enters the room in his mother's womb, and John the Baptist in his mom's womb is doing somersaults because he is so excited, right? So then as you go through the narrative of Jesus' life, you just see him continuing to be praised by the tribes of Israel, whether it is the shepherds at his birth or the sinful woman pouring out her alabaster flask on his feet or the disciples worshiping him after he calms the storm or the throngs of people shouting Hosanna as he enters into Jerusalem. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus being praised by the descendants of Jacob's sons. Then, Jesus 
dies, resurrects, ascends to the right hand of the Father, but before he goes there, he tells the church, you go to Jerusalem, you wait, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in Acts 10, after in Acts 2, we've seen the Jewish disciples speak in tongues, right? They receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues. In Acts 10, A non-Jewish man named Cornelius is led to Christ by Peter, and what happens? He speaks in tongues. The same tongues the disciples spoke in in Acts chapter 2 when they received the power of the Spirit. Showing Cornelius, this non-Jewish man, is being saved and is receiving the same Spirit as the Jewish disciples. And what that tells us is that God has brought Gentiles into the covenant. And he is making one new spiritual community in place of the old. The New Testament church, Jew and Gentile, brought together as one body under the blood of Christ. So then, when you and I get together, like we have done today, and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, and more importantly to Jesus, the Son of God from Judah's line, the Messiah, we're seeing this prophetic blessing being fulfilled. Every time you sing holy, holy, holy with the local church, this prophetic blessing is being fulfilled. Christ is being praised by his brothers. Every time you belt out your favorite worship song alone in your car at volume levels, you'd be embarrassed if anybody but God was there, right? You're like, this is just for Jesus, okay? It's an audience of one when I go to this level in my car. Um, The prophetic blessing is being fulfilled. Every time you sing nighttime praises with your children before bed, the prophetic blessing is being fulfilled. You have the faith of Abraham. That means you're a part of Abraham's family by faith in Christ. So every time you bow down in faith, the same faith that Abraham had, to worship Christ, the Messiah from Judah's line, this blessing is coming to pass. And what that should do is just motivate us to worship even more, to be even more committed to gathering with the saints. What will that look like for you in 2022, to be more committed to gathering with the saints? Maybe God's calling you to go beyond Sunday mornings this year. I say 2022, we're almost done with 2022. Let me back that up. What's it going to look like in 2023 for you to commit more to gathering with the saints? 2022, it's pretty much done, all right? But in 2023, what, what's it going to look like? So, so maybe you go beyond Sunday mornings and you say in 2023, when we come back on January 4th, our first midweek of the year, you say, I'm going to midweek this year. I know you're already behind on Revelation, don't worry about it. Number one, they're all online. Number two, I'm going to do a big review. Number three, we've got handouts, all right? So come jump in with us, Revelation 9, verse 1, on January 4th, and say, this year, I'm going to be there on Sundays and Wednesdays. I want, to, I want to fulfill the prophetic blessing even more. I want to praise Christ even more. Or maybe you want to go deeper in your daily worship. Going beyond a devotion a day keeps the devil away. To truly have a plan for daily worship in your Christian walk. And we've actually created a resource to help you with that. And we will show you that at the end of the service today. Where the bottom line is the words, your brothers shall praise you, is a prophetic blessing that you should be a part of bringing to pass every single day as a believer in Christ until one day when the Lord returns and he will gather his people into his kingdom and the prophetic blessing will come to pass as every soul spends eternity in the perpetual praise of Christ the King. 
Revelation 22 gives us a picture of this. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you want to know what the name on the foreheads means, come to midweek this year and you'll find out. Let's keep going. Teaching point number two. Christ will defeat his enemies. Christ will defeat his enemies. That, that ultimate peace we see in Revelation 22, how is that going to come about? What will come of all the sin and depravity that is around us? How is there going to be this reality we're going to live in forever where nothing is accursed? What will become of evil people doing evil things? What will become of those who reject the Lord and reject the rule of His Son? That's where we get to the second teaching point, that Christ will defeat His enemies. You see in verse 8 it says that Judah's hand will be on the neck of His enemies. This is certainly prophetic as it's not true about Judah. This has got to, once again, be looking beyond Judah. Judah does not have his neck or his hand on the neck of his enemies. Judah is living out his years in a foreign land because he could not find food. He is dependent upon the food reserve of a foreign ruling power. That is not having your hand on the neck of your enemies. So this isn't about him. It's clearly got to be about somebody who's going to come from his line. Now, I think this prophetic blessing first finds its fulfillment not in Jesus, but in David. David was the great unifying king whose reign marked, uh, was marked with, with multiple successful military conquests. In a lot of ways, you see David doing the work that the Israelites were supposed to do in the days of Joshua. And God promised David that he would have someone from his lineage sitting on the throne forever. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now at this point you're like, okay, he's going to come from his body. This has got to be about Solomon. In part, yes, but when you, he, when you see the Lord say, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, that can't be about Solomon. Solomon's not going to live forever. So it's got to be about someone else. David came from Judah's line. David came from Judah's body. And David showed us what it looks like for God's king to drive back his enemies. But David was a man who failed at times, failed miserably at times. Ultimately, David would die. You can go look at his grave, right? This is what Peter tells him in Acts 2. He's like, we can go see David's grave if you guys want to go see it. He's not resurrected. But ultimately, this is about Jesus who comes from David's body. David came from Judah's body. Jesus comes from David's body. And he does not just defeat his enemies for a time. He eviscerates them once and for all. We don't always think of Jesus this way at Christmas. Sometimes we think of you know, the baby in the manger and, and we forget that he is going to return one day and strengthen and crush his enemies. Vance Havner once said, When I pastored a country church, a farmer didn't like the sermons I preached on hell. He said, Preach about the meek and lowly Jesus. I said, That's where I got my information about hell. I love that quote. I, I, I kind of fit it in this morning because I wanted it in. But, um, but truly, truly, the meek and mild child of the manger would indeed teach us much about the doctrine of hell and teach us much about the judgment of God. And one day when he returns, he will bring about the judgment of God. 
In His first coming, indeed, He was meek and mild. But the child of Bethlehem grew up and he went on his mission as a brave warrior who would slay sin and death for his people. Paul talks about him this way in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to what he's done to his enemies. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When it says rulers and authorities, you can include Satan in that. Anyone that God has made alive has had their worst enemies defeated by Christ's work at the cross. Sin and Satan and death and hell. If God has saved you and he has made you alive... He has already taken his strong hand and put it on the neck of your worst enemies. And in light of that, who are you going to be afraid of? Who are we going to fear if Jesus has already taken his strong hand and put it on the neck of sin, put it on the neck of death, put it on the neck of hell, put it on the neck of Satan? And who are we going to fear knowing that one day... He is going to return. The child born in the manger will roll back the clouds and he will return in power, in majestic power. And anyone who has continued to reject him, who has not received life from him, will be counted as his enemy. And Revelation 19 talks about him making war on his enemies. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. If you want to know who the beast and the false prophet is, you should come to midweek, which starts on January 4th this year. All right, it's the last time I'll do it. What you need to know for today is just that. That is a passage about Jesus defeating his enemies. It's not going to be hard for him. It's not going to be close. It's not going to be like Army-Navy yesterday where Army barely gets it across the line at the end. It's not going to be like that. He's just going to eviscerate them. And our response to that reality should be to repent if we have not repented yet. It should be to surrender now and receive grace rather than surrender later in judgment. And if you've repented, your response should be to tell everybody. With gentleness and with respect, you should tell everybody and give them a reason for the hope that you have within you every chance you get. Because one day Christ will return. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of his judgment. You don't want his hand to be on your neck. Let's keep going. You look to verse 9. You see the lion identified with the tribe of Judah for the first time. Genesis 49, verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? We get two different pictures of a lion in verse 9. One is a young cub. The other is this entrenched older lion who's ready to pounce. You don't want to mess with the older lion, right? And I think this portion of Jacob's blessing has a double fulfillment. On one hand, I think this is describing the evolution of the tribe of Judah. 
In the days of Joshua and the judges, and into the reign of Saul, Judah was a cub. Judah was not the most important tribe. Other tribes were much more important. Joshua was not from the tribe of Judah, and yet he was the leader of uh, Israel after Moses' death. In the days of the judges, only two of, uh, 12, of the twelve judges are from Judah, and it's not the more prominent ones. Othniel is the only one that really has prominence that comes from the, the line of uh, Judah. But the other judges like Deborah and Gideon and Samson that are so famous and, and did so much, uh, had their faults but did so much, they came from other tribes. But then, after Saul fails as king, and the kingdom is torn away from him, and it's given to David, David is from the line of Judah. And he is this fierce king who fights the enemies of Israel, and he he brings peace to Israel's pack. And as David reigns, and as Solomon reigns, Judah becomes the entrenched old lion. You think twice now. In the days of the judge, it's like, oh, we'll go mess with Judah. But now in David's time, you think twice before you go mess with Judah, before you mess with Israel. So on one hand, Jacob's words are referring to the immediate future of Judah and how they were going to rise in prominence in Israel's history. But on the other hand, we know these words are referring to Christ because in Revelation 5.5, he's explicitly called the Lion of Judah. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold... The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So teaching point number three, Christ is the lion of Judah. Christ is the lion of Judah. He, he came to earth in the manger as a cub, God of the universe in a little human body. Martin Lloyd-Jones said he took humanity into his deity. That is the whole meaning of the incarnation. That is precisely what happened at Bethlehem. That God took humanity into his deity. But he grew up. He ministered. He showed his strength and he showed his prominence in his miracles and in his teaching and the authority in his words. He showed his majesty in the transfiguration. And then the lion was tied down in the prime of his life. If you ever have seen the uh, the movie based on the C.S. Lewis book, uh, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when, when Aslan is tied down and he is slain. Think of that when we think of the Lion of Judah being tied down, when he's crucified. He was roused. He was murdered. And if that's the end of the story, we couldn't call Jesus the entrenched Lion of Judah because you would say they roused him, they killed him, and he couldn't do anything about it. He just died. That's not the, the, the narrative, right? This is where Easter is so important to Christmas. We know that he, he died and then he rose again to prove that he is victorious over death. He's more powerful than death, that he holds the keys to, to life and death, to death and Hades, to show he's truly the Son of God, that he had completed the task set out for him, that he was an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of his people. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits rightfully until one day when he returns. And when he does, the entrenched lion will be roused indeed. He will roar and his enemies will perish once and for all. If you're a believer, this should give you daily encouragement. To know that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah should give you daily encouragement, and here's why. In 1 Peter 5.8, we meet a different lion. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I don't know what you walked in with this morning. I don't know what your body is suffering from. I don't know what your mind is suffering from. I don't know what the people you loved is suffering from. I don't know how worried you are about getting everything done before Christmas and you're stressed out about the season. I don't know what is weighing you down this morning as you walked in. Maybe nothing. Maybe you're, you're walking in and you're just, you're just skipping on air and, and everything's going great. I would guess that's like three of us, right? Most of you, you walked in with a limp this morning. Hearing that there is this lion named Satan who's prowling around and every day wants to eat your life. He wants to destroy you and your family. That he looks at your weaknesses and he looks at your doubts and he looks at your struggles and it's all just bloody red meat to him. Hearing that probably does not help you with those anxieties and struggles. You're like, well, that's scary. You're telling me that Satan every day is just waiting, just wanting to steal my joy, just wanting to consume me, wanting to destroy me, wanting to keep God from being glorified in my life? Absolutely, that's what he's doing every single day. And as as alarming as that is, the good news of Genesis 49.9 is we've got a better lion. And that's why you should be encouraged every day you got a better lion, a lion that is entrenched, a lion you don't want to rouse, a lion that, that lives in you, that is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God that our lion is stronger and our lion wins in the end. Let's keep going. Christ will be praised by his brothers. He will defeat his enemies. He is the lion of Judah. Number four, Christ is the ruler to come. You see this in verse 10. uh, Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The scepter refers to the tribal rod. It's the symbol of authority that was held by ancient rulers. It communicated royalty, majesty. And this scepter will not depart from Judah. Nor will the staff between his feet uh, part. This is a reference to him having children. The ruler's staff will remain with those who come from between Judah's feet or come from his loins. It will be reserved for those who come from his loins. Jacob says the scepter will not leave Judah and the staff will not be removed from between his feet until, quote, tribute comes to him. It's one of the most confusing phrases in the book of Genesis. If you have a King James Version of the Bible this morning, it reads like this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Sometimes you read two translations of the Bible, you set them up next to each other, and you're like, well, the differences are negligible. And then you read a passage like this, and, 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 and the King James, it goes, until Shiloh comes. While in the ESV it says until tribute comes to him. How do we get Shiloh on one hand until tribute comes to him on the other? How are they so different? Well, Shiloh is a composite word made up of two Hebrew words. Shy, tribute, low to him. And that is why it's translated that way in the ESV. Shiloh appears 33 times in Genesis, and all but one of those times refers to an area of land. This is the one time. We're not talking about land here. We have a composite word that refers to the Messiah. The Messiah is the coming one that is due tribute. So we could paraphrase verse 10 by saying, 
all uh, authority will not leave Judah, and rulers are going to keep coming from his line until the one whom all tribute is due comes. All right, if we wanted to paraphrase it, that's what we say. Authority is not going to leave Judah. Rulers are going to keep coming out of his line until the one to whom all tribute is due comes. And when he does, the obedience of the people will belong to him. We can say without a doubt, this is Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. The one born in Bethlehem ended the hunt for the Messiah. It ended the search for the ultimate Israelite king. Jewish people don't need to hope for a king like David anymore. They have the promised son of David, of the house of Judah, sitting on the throne forever. There was a succession of kings that came from Judah. Some of those kings were good, some of those kings were bad, some were in between. And that succession led all the way to a feeding trough in David's town. This is why Herod wanted Jesus killed. Sometime after Jesus is born in Bethlehem, wise men come looking for him from the east and they show up in Jerusalem. They say, we followed a star to worship this, uh, this, this newborn king. Well, Herod didn't like this. Even though he himself was barely Jewish, the Romans had appointed him as a king over Israel. The idea of another king threatened his little puppet throne that the Romans had set up. So he came up with a plot to keep his power. He was going to kill Jesus. He was going to have the wise men locate Jesus and then he could travel there and he could harm him. When the wise men never came back to see him, he revved things up a gear. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod knew a Messiah would be a king with more right to the throne than him. And according to Jacob's words... Once we have that Messiah, there are no more kings coming from Judah's line. He's the final one. He's the only one that Israel truly needs. And that's why Herod wanted Jesus dead. There's no more need for Herod or any other king anymore once the Messiah is born. And then you see at the end of verse 10, Jacob prophetically states that to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's how you know you're a subject in the kingdom of Christ. If you're in the kingdom, you obey the king. It's simple as that. Not perfectly, right? We, we know we mess up, but consistently. Like that's the direction of your life, that, that you as a citizen of the kingdom pay tribute to the king. This sentence in Jacob's blessing eliminates the concept of a carnal Christian. And what I mean by a carnal Christian is someone who claims the name of Christ with their mouth, but there's nothing in their life that demonstrates they surrender to him as king, as lord. Thomas Manton, the English Puritan, said, a carnal Christian is the carcass of a true Christian. If a true believer could be spiritually dead, they would look like a carnal Christian. That's what the old Puritan's saying. Christianity without obedience cannot claim love for Christ because he said to us, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we don't obey him, we can't say we love him. If we don't love him, how can we say we know him? How can we claim redemption? How can we claim his name as our final authority, as the final say in our lives? Obedience is not an idea. Obedience is not a sentiment. Obedience is an action. 
And our actions should show love for the king, tribute for the king, if we're going to say we're in the kingdom. And then we wrap it up. Final teaching point comes from verses 11 and 12. What we see is there is a time of prosperity that is ahead. It's described as a time when this king who's going to come from Judah's line will tie his donkey to the best vine in the vineyard and let it eat the grapes because there's so much good wine flowing in the kingdom that he's like, eh, whatever. I'll just let the beast of burden eat the best grapes because I got so much wine in the cellar, I don't even care. Eat away. There's going to be a time when there's no famine in the land. And you'll be able to tell when you look at the king. Because the irises of his eyes are going to look darker. They're going to look darker because the whites of his eyes will truly be white. When people are, are, are not able to eat and their, their body starts to get sick because it's not getting food and water at the level it's supposed to, a lot of times they become jaundiced and you'll see the, the whites of their eyes start to turn yellow. That's not going to happen because there's going to be plenty of food. The king's going to eat. His teeth are going to be white because he's just going to be chugging milk, man. So be so much milk, he's just gonna be like, just, just give it to me, more and more milk. He's going to do his laundry and wine just because he can, right? We got so much good wine, I'll wash my clothes in it. Like, that's prosperity. I don't even know if Bezos is like washing his clothes in an 81 Merlot, you know what I mean? But, but the king here is just like, eh, just, just use the good wine like Tide, I don't even care. I mean, it's hyperbolic language, it's extreme language, but it is there to communicate to us the ideas of prosperity, the idea of abundance, the idea of health. The king will enjoy these on his throne. But remember, this prophetic blessing is for who? Not just Judah, but for the whole tribe of Judah, right? So what's insinuated here is that while the royalty from Judah's line will experience this prosperity, it also belongs to anybody who's in his kingdom. Teaching point number five, Christ brings prosperity to his people. And that should get you really excited for heaven. And that's part of what Advent is. We don't just look back at the fact that he came in order to live and then to die and resurrect and ascend to the right hand of the Father to get us to heaven. We look forward to the fact that he's going to return, right? And he's going to take us there. He's going to consummate the kingdom that he established in his first coming when he comes again. And if we believe this, if we believe Christ will come again and he will bring prosperity to his people, then we should be living in anticipation of his return every single day, right? I know you're not going to celebrate Christmas all year unless you're like a little bit odd, okay? Um, I, I know that, you know, come January, most of you are going to pack the trees up. There's some of you who will leave it up a little bit longer. You get judged by your neighbors, whatever. Do what you got to do. But I, I expect that in May you're going to be done with your Christmas celebration, you're going to wait till December and you'll be like, yeah, you know, late November, we'll start looking back at Advent again. But all year long, we live in anticipation of the second Advent. All year long, we live in anticipation of Christ's return. What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us as he writes to Titus, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Biblically, to look for the return of Jesus does not mean to just walk outside your house and just stand there looking at the horizon. I'm just waiting for him to come back. To anticipate the return 
is to live in light of it, which is what Paul calls Titus to do. Christ is going to return. He's going to bring an eternity of prosperity to us. If I believe that, if you believe that, then we should be renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. I believe he's going to come back. Therefore, I will deny ungodliness as a viable source of joy. I know he's going to come back and bring me real joy. Therefore, I will not settle for this fake joy that the world offers. I will deny this as an acceptable activity as a redeemed child of God because I do not believe that there's really gold at the end of that rainbow like they're promising. But I believe the promises of God and so I'm going to live in light of his return. I'm going to wait on that. I'll renounce ungodliness and I will wait on his promises. I'm going to live a self-controlled life. If I know he's coming back, then I'm going to live a self-controlled life. Self-control is what keeps you from going back on your renunciation of the world. If you're not self-controlled, the Bible says that your life is like a city without walls and anybody can pretty much just come in and take what they want whenever they want. You got information, they'll come in and turn you into gossip because you got no self-control. They'll just walk in and they'll say, hey, what do you know? You got no self-control. Know all this. Right? That's what happens. Self-control keeps us from going back on our renunciation of the world. Keeps us from going back on that statement we've made in our hearts that sin in the world is not a viable source of joy. To live self-control is to rely on God's power to keep us from that sin that we have renounced. And so, if we really believe He's going to bring us prosperity, we renounce ungodliness, we live self-controlled, and... We present an upright, godly life to him every day as our offering. A life of integrity. A life that is anticipating his return on the daily. A life that rejects the world and says, I will hold out for the prosperity of the ruler to come from Judah's line. I trust in his reward. I reject the so-called reward of this present age. Wrapping up Jacob's blessing shows us that the Messiah is praiseworthy. He is enemy-defeating. He is majestically royal. He is eternally ruling. He is prosperity-rending. What can we do but surrender to him? What can we do but praise him and anticipate him? What can we do but enjoy him now and forever? I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Maybe you would hear all this as they're coming and you would think, brother, all that sounds great, but that's for somebody else. Like, I hear you. I'm very happy to watch God work in other people's lives. I'm very happy to see the changes he makes in their lives, but I have tried time and time again to get myself together. And I am beyond this. All this prosperity you're talking about, all the love of God you're talking about, all the compassion and mercy of God you're talking about, I have messed up too much for that. He can't love me. He's not going to love me. He's disappointed in me. He's done with me. So I'm happy to pray for other people. I'm happy to be excited for other people and all those things. I've pretty much given up on the idea of God working in my life. Can we just pause before we close, take one step back, and just again remember that we're not talking about the Messiah, the hope of the ages coming out of Joseph's line, the line of the good son who never messed up on camera and did everything right and saved his family. No. It comes from the line of Judah. It's not even Reuben's line. Reuben's the oldest, son of Leah. 
Jacob's first wife, at least if it were Reuben, we'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, Reuben gets the position, Messiah comes from his line. No, it's Judah who sent his daughter-in-law away destitute because he was callous in his heart toward her and then accidentally impregnated her because he thought she was a prostitute. The sinless Savior comes from that guy's lineage. If that's the case, maybe you're just the sort of person God loves to save. And maybe your messed up life is just the sort of life he loves to work in. The Messiah is as much for you as he is for anybody. So as much as you're willing to admit that you are a total mess, and as much as you are willing to repent and put your trust in him, I'm going to tell you, he's not just going to clean that mess up. He is going to bring you joy in this life, even on the hard days, and ultimately he's going to bring you eternal prosperity. Because that's what he does. He saves those who cannot save themselves, who turn to him with open hands and say, I need you. He will be there ready to usher you into his kingdom and receive your tribute for the rest of your days. Turn to him now. Let's pray. Father, the offer of salvation is so rich. And... Um, Lord, lest we think it's only for the perfect, you bring the perfect out of Judah. He was so messed up, and we're so messed up. And so we look at Judah, and we see you working not just good, but the greatest good out of his life. What are you going to do in ours through Jesus? Lord, I have seen you do amazing things through a lot of messed up people who have been willing to admit that they're a disaster and they've repented and they put their trust in you. I've seen you take their lives and do amazing things through it. I think of my brother Daniel Chambers who has spent the last two World Cup Morocco games watching it with 11 Muslim Moroccans over in Europe, a missionary, watching these games with 11 Moroccans, getting to show the love of Christ to 11 Moroccans. You rescued that guy, Daniel, out of the mire, out of sin, and now you're using him out there. This is what you do, God. You take a man who's a total mess and you save him, and then you send him out to reach 11 Moroccans. I love you, Lord, and I thank you that you take us, mess, messed up people, sinful people, disastrous people, and you, 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 you pluck us up out of our, our, our disaster, you show us the love of Christ. You transform our lives. You use us, and then you bring us into your presence forever to receive the tribute you deserve. Lord, if anybody's not getting that this morning, if they're not receiving that great gift of, of Advent this morning, the great gift of your Son, I pray that you would open their eyes to the glory of who you are, and they would repent, and you would save them from their mess, and that you would use them to reach others in the same way you've used my brother Daniel. I love you, Lord. I thank you that this is how you work. I thank you for the scripture this morning. And now, God, we just want to praise you as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.